I'm Kimberly Crenshaw, and this is Intersectionality Matters, the podcast that brings intersectionality to life by exploring the hidden dimensions of today's most pressing issues. This idea travelogue lists up the work of leading activists, artists, and scholars, and helps listeners understand politics, the law, social movements, and even their own lives in deeper, more nuanced ways. The morning after Kamala Harris delivered a historic speech at the Democratic National Convention, becoming the first black woman to accept the vice presidential nomination for a major political party, we hosted a special conversation entitled From the Base to the Face of the Democratic Party, Kamala Harris, Black Women and Misogynoir in the 2020 Election. Standing on the shoulders of Shirley Chisholm, Fannie Lou Hamer, and so many others, Harris became the first woman of South Asian descent, the first black woman, the first graduate of an HBCU, and the first AKA to be nominated for the second highest office in the land. So there was a lot of history being made at the DNC that night. But to be honest, you might not have gotten much of a sense of what this history entails if you only watch the after show on any of the major networks. So we came together the next morning, not only to talk about what had happened in the DNC, but also to assess what this moment portends more broadly for intersectional politics in 2020. If there's one thing that should ground any conversation about electoral politics in 2020, it's that the success of the Democratic Party turns on the outsized influence of its most loyal constituency, black women. In every election since 1980, black women have been the most loyal to the Democratic nominee. More recently, they were the foundation on which Barack Obama built both of his presidential bids. And in 2016, in the debacle that put 45 in the White House, black women cast their votes for the Democratic nominee to the tune of 98 percent. And let's not forget black women's role in Doug Jones' defeat of Roy Moore in Alabama and in the so-called blue wave of the 2018 midterm elections. But for all that energy, it sometimes seems like the Dems don't always want to dance at the party with the ones that brung them. And that would be us. Or to use another metaphor, black women have been the wheels on the Democratic bus. But will we ever get to sit in the driver's seat? Now that Kamala Harris is the nominee, are we there yet? Or is there much, much more that the party needs to do? And what should we make of how Harris's unique position as a black woman has put her directly in the path of political misogynoir? the term introduced by Moya Bailey and Trudy to describe the particular dimensions of racist misogyny. How has all of this surfaced both outside and inside the Democratic Party? How are we all implicated in what happens to Kamala Harris? Are the various constituencies that claim her, and there are a lot, doing enough soul-searching in their own ranks in order to combat it? These are the questions that might have been asked and maybe even answered after Harris's speech if our guests had been part of those conversations. So consider this the rewind of that night with some more flavor added to the mix. 
So buckle up for a frank sister to sister conversation between black women on politics. It's a mashup of The View and the Capital Gang with a touch of hardball thrown in the black women's edition. So joining the conversation was audience favorite and co-conspirator Barbara Arnwine president and founder of the Transformative Justice Coalition, trailblazing leader in the protection of voting rights and former ED of the Lawyers Committee on Civil Rights Under Law. Donna Brazil, an endowed chair at Howard University and adjunct faculty at Georgetown University, two-time acting chair of the Democratic National Committee and a Fox News contributor. State's Attorney Kim Fox, the first African-American state's attorney for Cook County, Illinois, Fox was elected to that position in November of 2016 after running on a platform of criminal justice reform. And Kirsten West Savali, an executive producer at Essence Magazine, most recently serving as the magazine's senior editor of News and Politics. She's the recipient of both the Vernon Jarrett Medal and the NABJ Award for Journalistic Excellence. Later in the conversation, we welcomed Congresswoman Maxine Waters to the virtual table. Waters is serving her 15th term in the U.S. House of Representatives, representing the 43rd Congressional District of California, the first woman and the first African-American chair of the House Financial Services Committee. She sits on the Steering and Policy Committee, is a member of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, and is also a member and past chair of the Congressional Black Caucus. It was an unimaginable honor to have her join us. I began by asking Donna Brazil for her takeaways from Kamala Harris's speech, what Harris sought to accomplish that night, and what unique challenges she faced in meeting this historical moment. Well, first of all, it's such a great honor to be with all of you during this historic moment. As you know, at 10.57 p.m. last night, she finally said, I accept the nomination. And she spent the next seven to nine minutes talking about Joe Biden, his values, and and then began to uh, prosecute the case on Donald Trump and Mike Pence. I I think that was the last three minutes. You might remember some of the words, you know, there's no vaccine for racism. She knows what a predator is. And then, of course, she uh, talked about uh, his mishandling, Donald Trump mishandling of COVID and so many other issues. But I think in that opening frame, when she talked about her background, her family, when she talked about her roots, that was an important moment because uh, already we've seen the media try to pigeonhole her, sort of box her in. And I think for black women in politics, for women, period, but for black women, um, we're invisible. Our story has never been told. Uh, the, the country really don't know us. And I watched uh, in horror last night after her, her remarks, which, by the way, I was inspired by her remarks. But of course, without a crowd in a virtual context, it's very difficult to see the kind of energy uh, displayed when someone is speaking from a podium. But afterwards, Fox News came to me and I said, wait a minute. I mean, the room, the room was filled. It was filled with our ancestors. She mentioned the shoulders that she stood upon. They they are there with her. I had to bring up the notion that she was a historic candidate, that we've only seen this now from a major political party uh, three times. And this is only the fourth time in our history. So I think we have three things that we must constantly do. I agree. We got to feel the airwaves. 
We got to feel the newspapers. Because if we don't tell our stories, Toni Morrison said, if we don't shape our own narrative, if we don't tell the American people who we are, I had to remind my colleagues. I said, she was speaking for my mother who was amazed. She was speaking for my grandmother. She was speaking for teachers. She was speaking for those who pick cotton. I mean, they, people lose sight of history. And if we don't remind them of this historic moment, if we don't request what we need in order to help Joe Biden and Kamala Harris win, then we're gonna lose. We need to tell them what we need to win. I'm tired of people telling me what I need. I know what I need. You know what you need. And this is not gonna be an easy lift. We're gonna need resources because they're already coming after our vote. Well, thank you. Thank you, Donna, for getting us fired up. And we're so fortunate to, to have you to help us think about every stage of this, because some part of it, I think there's this assumption uh, that because this was a history-making moment, that that in turn is going to be the key to the turnout. And, you know, we, people are getting it twisted if they don't understand that there's not magic in this. This is about real resources, real mobilization, and giving people something to be mobilized around all the things that need to uh, be talked about from a Black woman's perspective, which is why I'm so glad we're doing this. One of the resources that's important is interpretive resources, right? Having people to tell the story. So yes, Kamala told a story, but there were what? Maybe two people who were able to actually lift up uh, what that story was in the commentary space. When she did the name checking of all the black women on whose shoulders she stood, how many of those commentators had a clue about who those people were? <laughs> so when they don't have a clue, rather than ask a question, they jump over the conversation and go to something else, which at least I think maybe what happened last night, but who am I? So I'm gonna ask you. Uh, Kirsten, what did you see last night um, in the coverage and what the conversation was? What was there, what wasn't there? I saw men speaking. And I saw white women speaking for the most part. I think I saw Joy Reid for a little bit, you know, who was amazing per usual. What we miss in these conversations, I think, is the nuance and the texture and the contours that only black women can bring to this conversation because we know how to hold everything that we need to hold. We need to talk about her, her record. We need to talk about her politics, but we also need to talk about the fact that she is experiencing so much hate across the board. You know, so much hate, even before this conversation, and it was a, we were announcing this conversation, someone responded with, since when do you ever see Indian women and uh, white women have a panel to discuss uh, misogyny and how they hate their men, but leave it to black women to have that conversation? That we're not able to hold space uh, uh, in the national imagination and national reality to talk about what we need and what we want. So that's typically what I see missing. And I saw it missing a lot last night where we had to kind of shoehorn in the, the, the historical aspect, the historic aspect of, of her announcement. And, you know, Donna Brazil said it brilliantly, is that if we don't talk about that history, if we can contextualize it, then no one else will. In journalism, I often say, you know, there's this thing about objectivity and versus advocacy. And the thing about objectivity is we can't start in the middle, right? We can't start in the middle of a story and, and pretend that we're tell telling the facts. So if we don't talk about the fact that black women are historically and currently at the intersections of state and sexual violence. If we don't talk about the fact that because Kamala is married to a white man, she's being called a bed witch by black men. If we don't talk about the fact that, you know, sh they're saying that because she's 
Jamaican, her father is Jamaican, then she's not really black. And we don't talk about it in the context of the transatlantic slave trade and the ships didn't just come to the U.S., right? That they, they were in Jamaica and our people are in Jamaica. Then we get caught in these conversations around nationalism that don't really tell the full, complete story of black women. And one more thing I will say about her, even her speech is that I felt like, and I've been really critical of the senator. I will not even, I won't dance around that. I felt like her, her speech last night was one where it reflected the influence that black women have had, black women activists, organizers have had on her thinking and on her politics and on how she's going to position herself going forward. She could have easily used this kind of obfuscating, obfuscating Obamian kind of Black Lives Matter no more, no less situation. And, but she centered black women from the time she stepped on that stage. And that matters. You know, I, I still hear the ski wing in my head from last night when she said my beloved Alpha Kappa Alpha. And we know we can talk about symbolism and representation a lot more later, but I just want to mention that the, the idea and the reality that she expended some political capital within the first minute of her speech matters. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And and I, I wonder in that speech um, whether we also saw the influence of um, some of the reservations or concerns about her being too powerful, being too much, you know, uh, the black woman. I, I'm mindful of the fact that when uh, Obama first ran, uh, Michelle was giving great speeches. And then at some point there was this, uh, let's kind of pack it in a little bit. Uh, there was that cover of, uh, I, I can't remember whether it was New York or New York Magazine that had a picture of her with a big afro doing a, a fist pump. You know, the caricature of black women who are leaders is a picture of a black woman out of control, a scary black woman. So how is it, Kirsten, that you think perhaps this backdrop may in some way help constitute the very tight rope that she's going to have to be walking, running for potentially, the eventually, the leader of the free world, as they say. You know, she's running now. She's running for president now. We, we, we know that. And, and I think it's, it's unfortunate, but it's our reality that we have to hold that, right? We have to have to step into a space. I see it for myself in my profession. I see it Personally, if I'm talking about my kids and I'm talking about, you know, my late husband, then it's like, oh, let's let's embrace it. Let's talk about it. When I talk about, you know, the racism that we face, when I talk about how white women want to talk about allyship and solidarity, when we when we are critical of not just conservative politics, but kind of the liberal politics that arm in arm sometimes victimize us in these ways, then it's a problem. And what we saw in her speech, I think, was this idea of let me be a little bit softer. Right. Let me not show that I'm this ambitious. Right. And, and I'm not a proponent of naked ambition without principle. But when we talk about ambition, we should have the right to be ambitious. We should have the right to say, I am a leader and I know what I'm talking about, as opposed to having to talk about Mama and the kids and Sunday dinner and, you know, which is which is great. But right now in this moment, with almost 200,000 people dead from COVID, with a, a, a president who is a, a, just an imbecile, who has no idea what he's doing, who is a, a clear, you know, misogynist, a clear someone who is a proponent of white supremacist policies. We need a black woman to say, I understand from not just being a woman, but being a black woman, and I'm unapologetic in that. So I, I did not really, it was almost cringeworthy a little bit. We talked about just a little bit. You don't have to do that. You know, you don't have to soften yourself. You can stand in your full power and say what needs to be said.
And the question though is, do we have to do that, right? Because even mm. within our own community, there is still a longstanding embarrassment about the leadership of Black women, a longstanding sense that there's some kind of gender disrepair uh, in our community. There are entire policies, you know, that are based on this idea that there's something amiss about, you know, uh, Black women's leadership. Um, so if, if we can't really get on the same page about how one of our greatest assets is Black women's leadership, if we can't do it in our own squad, how do we expect the American public to be able to read African-American women's leadership and see it as the great value that it is, especially, you know, we can't talk about that. And so for that, let me come over to you, State's Attorney Fox, because you're in the middle of being a Black woman leader. You are in the middle of seeing what the face of misogynoir looks like when you are exercising the powers of your office. So from your vantage point and your experiences, what does she have to look forward to <laughs> uh, in, in terms of some of the challenges and the way that misogynoir shows up particularly for Black women leaders? You know, I, I think she already knows. When you talk about showing up in the fullness of who she is, how she got to that stage last night was having made history as the first Black woman district attorney in San Francisco, I think the first Black woman district attorney in the state of California. Um, and for context, and we've talked about this, this is a field that is largely male and largely white. 79% of elected prosecutors are white men. 16% um, are white women, 4% are men of color, and less than 1% are women of color. I think we have to remember that. I think we, we to the point that was made earlier, like she shows up last night, she, she didn't hatch. Like there was a, a journey that came with that. And particularly doing this type of work, I can speak from my own experience. When you are someone who is not in that profession, right? Your mere presence is a disruption. Your mere presence, the how are you gonna view this system that is historically seeing you on the other side of it when you are leading it? And you know, I wish too, to Kristen's point, that there was conversation about that when we talked, she talked about racism being not curable by a vaccine, how it shows up and harms our bodies in all the ways. Um, as we talk about where we are with in the summer of George Floyd, what does that mean when, when she talks about and wants to reconcile the history of having been a prosecutor and doing that as a woman and as a Black woman? And so I know she has seen um, the misogyny, um, the misogynoir, because I see it. I see it every day. And it is almost suffocating to not have enough of us talk about what that looks like. You know, Chicago's got a summer of violence, we have looting, and the language that is being used around what's happening had dripping with racism, dripping. And my response is dripped with this lens of well, what is the black woman going to say to justify how her people are acting? And, and I know she has seen that. I know that the, the journey to get there as the first one was rich with that. And so, you know, it's not so much what she has to look forward to. I think what is she going to tap into and share about what this journey looks like? Because I think where we celebrate 
her being on that stage last night as we talk about the people who came before her in all of it, whether it is the big names of Shirley Chisholm or you know Shamala Harris herself or Shamala's mother, I think for Black women, we want to say, tell it. Tell it and tell it all, right? That this instinct to call it magical, what we do, this isn't magic at all. This is, it is surviving and thriving despite the magic, the hocus pocus of trying to disappear us. Um, and we weren't disappeared. You know, you pulled the curtain back, we were still there. But I, I want, I think, having gone through and going through this daily, doing this work and seeing the massage noir and being incredibly frustrated that it doesn't get voice, that it doesn't get validated, that for Black women in all of our spaces this summer where people have said, oh my gosh, I didn't know that was happening, it's because you didn't see me. And I think the hope that so many of us have with Kamala on that stage, Senator Harris on that stage, is that you are one of us, you see us, you know us, amplify all of this for us. And I, I will say she did, you know, not only shout out the AK, she shout out the entire Divine Nine. And so I ooped from my couch um, <laughs> because I, I felt seen. And, but that's the point. I felt seen in that moment in a way that other people would not have been able to even recognize. And even afterwards, to the point that was made earlier, there was no conversation. Well, who was that that she was talking about this? What is that? But for those of us who felt seen, I think the expectation yeah. is that there will be even more amplification, that, that there's a, a greater responsibility to not just talk and check off the box that we talked about race. Talk about it personally, what this looks like, how, how you navigate yeah. this, how you have a career. And it's the same career I have, where you have locked up Black people. And what that means is a Black woman to do that and how we have to do that balance and not run from it not run from it. These are real conversations that we should be having about where our system is, but you get more credibility on how we reform it if we own that and own what it was like to do that in a black woman's body. Yeah, yeah. And you know, there, there's so much there that, that I hope we can come back and, and unpack a little bit more, but there there is this sense that, you know, there may be some tension between our expectation that that she say it all, and that and that we have the hard conversations um, that that we've all alluded to. There there are some hard conversations to, to be had about um, locking up black people. There are hard conversations about reform. There are hard conversations about exercising power in the body of a black woman. Whereas we know that these are the conversations to be had. I think the million dollar question is: Do the decision makers in the party know that these are the conversations that that have to be had? It's not just like putting her on there is going to uh, be the magic, right? Because there is no magic here. This is about real mobilization. Part of the um, question is what kind of conversations need to be had inside our community about the gender dimensions of this nomination. And so for this, I'm going to come around to you, Barbara. So, you know, we can look at each space and say there are conversations to be had about Kamala Harris as the nominee in order to mobilize this constituency uh, towards action. It, it's going to have to happen among women writ large because she's Black. It's going to have to happen between uh, Black people because she's, she's a woman. It's going to have to happen between South Asians because she's a Black South Asian. So this isn't just we're going to add up the Black folks and add up the women and add up the South Asians and add up you know the progress. It's not going to happen like that. So. We're looking for the conversations that need to happen. 
So what kind of conversation needs to happen among black folk in particular about Kamala being a woman, about patriarchy, about sexism? Well, uh, thank you. I mean, first of all, the tendency in the parties um, and the tendency of the pundits and everybody is to run away from the discussion. I mean, that's what everybody does as if the discussion isn't happening. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's the era. I mean, already we see this in the white talk, all the talk about, you know, calling her the H word, the NB word, the B word, uh, you know, all of this is happening, bed which all that stuff is happening, folks. I mean, we're, we're playing games with ourselves. If we think that somehow there is no conversation, there's an active conversation. And it's a very anti-black women conversation. And what's at stake here is not just the image of Harris, it's the othering of all of us. We knew that we were gonna have to deal with her running as a VP candidate uh, being politicized. We knew it was gonna be culturalized, but Lord, look at it being commercialized, the black womenism. And I wanna to say to people that, you know, that you gotta understand that all of this is part of voter suppression. You know, we got all kinds of voter suppression going on. We got the voter suppression of the USPS. Who would have ever thought we would have an era where, uh, where a, president and his cronies would be running around taking away collection boxes, destroying sorting machines, uh, that they would be uh, lying about vote by mail, even though, as you know from my vantage point, there's a whole lot of problems with vote by mail, and that they, there would be all of these efforts to impede people's ability to vote uh, but also voter suppression, people get it wrong. It's not just all these devices and practices and procedures and uh, you know all of this. The biggest one is discouragement. It's simply making people think it's not worth voting and thinking that their vote won't count. And we know that you know Putin's number one objective in working with this administration has been to destroy confidence in all of our institutions and none is more important in destroying confidence in and their vantage point is then in the vote. Uh, and you see what Americans are saying. Very few Americans now have confidence in the vote. And so using this voter suppression methodology of saying, you know, she's not black. Of saying she's not a worthy black, <laughs> of saying that uh, you know she's too ambitious, of uh, she's the angry black woman. All of these tropes are being used to discourage vote, to discourage her appeal, to discourage uh, people's engagement, and to say the ugliest one, the ugliest one. I mean, the H word is bad enough, but this she hates black men stuff is outrageous. So it is critical that we understand that we got a couple roles here as black women. One is that we got to address it. We can't sit around and pretend that this anti-black women messaging is not happening, that this misogynoir is not real. 
We got to just put it out there and centered it. And if we had been on any of those shows last night, that would have come out. Uh, we have to make sure that not only do we address it, that we confront it at all levels. Uh, not just, you know, the anti-white because, you know, absolutely Lim Limbaugh and the rest of the crowd are out of control running with this anti-black uh, you know, woman trope. But we also got to confront it internally. We got to talk to our men about it. We got to be very, you know, honest about what's going on and we got to try to fight all this nonsense about she's not black, etc. We also have an organized around it. That's why we needed this panel today, because we got to really look at who we are in this moment, how we respond to this moment, what we do in this moment, because it's determinative. She brought her squad with her last night when she read the roll call of Black Women Warriors. She brought her squad, but we have to be the real squad. We got to be out there in the real space talk, calling this stuff down, because if we allow her to be taken out on this basis, then how does any of us ever survive? It's critical that we understand how much is at stake, that our men understand how much is at stake, that the nation understands how much is at stake and how what this means for humanity writ large. So y'all heard why it is that despite the fact that I'm supposed to be on a writing sabbatical right now, uh, <laughs> Barbara Arnwine called me up and said, we have got to do this. Right? And this is exactly why, you know, this is perhaps the first time we've actually heard how misogynoir is a tool of vote suppression. It is. Think about it discrimination against black women, saying anything that they can say against black women is actually a tactic to suppress our vote. Precisely. So that, I mean, where are you going to actually understand and hear that except from the words and the experiences of black women who have been in politics and who understand that this is an Achilles heel in our own community? You know, the, the inability to see and speak out against the use misogynoir in our own community and on that note who better to introduce into the conversation but the great Maxine Waters happy birthday thank you it's thank just you. so wonderful to have you um she is serving her 15th term in the U.S. House of Representatives she represents the 43rd Congressional District in California I like to say she's my representative I don't really you know not really but she is in my heart you all can imagine how busy she is right now and the fact that she was willing to give us some of her precious time tells us all we need to know about how we need to be squatting up right now that is what the call of the moment is so Representative Waters we have been talking um, about the historic moment last night both what we all saw uh, be brought into that room uh, when Kamala Harris stood on the shoulders of so many uh, black women and also what was unspoken because in the punditry afterwards there were so few people who were literate about what she represented what she was talking about what the history of black women in politics has been what needs to be done in this moment to provide the resources, and that means all kinds of resources, for this ticket to actually win. So we just now uh, been talking um, about the attack on her, and um, I've been asking, 
uh, folks, A, um, what stands out most about some of the ways that she has been attacked as a Black woman? But secondly, are the, the various constituencies prepared to defend it? Does the Democratic Party have a plan to deal with the anti-Black women uh, politics happening? Do Black people have a plan to deal <laughs> with it? Do women have a plan to deal with it? So you've been there, you've seen it. Tell us what you're seeing, what you're hoping, what you're worried about. Well, thank you so very much. I am, I'm, I'm just really pleased and delighted to be here this morning. We need uh, to feel good about ourselves and the fact that we are very important to the Democratic Party. And if no one else will say it, we got to say it. <laughs> I'm feeling good. I'm feeling really great about being here today. And I looked at, you know, all the women uh, who are participating here today. And I thought we ought to take this show and put it on the road. Yes. Y'all hear that? You heard? <laughs> We ought to take this show and put it on the road because you have to admit uh, that people are afraid of us. People are afraid of us uh, because we speak out, uh, we say what's on our mind, uh, we speak up for ourselves. And, you know, the norm is to put you in a box and have you act in such a way that you don't offend anybody, mm. uh, that you don't tell any truths, mm. uh, that you don't let out any secrets. And if doing that means that you are denying your own self, it's okay with everybody else. Yes. And we have put up with that. And so this president and others who have talked about black women in ways that I never even thought I would hear yes. from that high in office. And I wanna tell you, I happened to come up on some one of these um, websites and listening to this a younger black man and what he said about Kamala. And it knocked me off my feet in the way he used the nastiest curse words uh, that you could imagine uh, in talking about her. And don't forget, we've got to stop the president of the United States from referring to women and black women in particular as nasty. Yes. Now, if he don't want anybody to talk about his wife, he better stop talking about us. Say it. Now, that is absolutely outrageous. Where did this word come from mm -hmm. in the description of women and black women? Mm -hmm. And so we've got a lot of work to do. And I've decided uh, that it is important to, you know, make sure that this president is not reelected. And I'm trying to figure out, and I think I've just about decided what role I can play. Mm. I cannot always play the role uh, that is designed for me uh, because I don't know how to speak in terms uh, that others would have me speak in. I'm not sure that I could contain myself and be as quiet as others would have me be. And so I think when I talk about, you know, taking this show on the road, what I'm saying is we've got these issues to talk about. You have defined it already, talking about who we are, what we stand for, and how we will not tolerate uh, being undermined and being uh, discriminated against in very special ways that Black women get discriminated against. We can talk about the issues associated with our families and with our communities and what Black women have done and are doing continuously to deal with opening up you know, opportunities and calling out those who need to be called out. And so, 
you know, I know that, you know, when I look at uh, Kamala, she came prepared. And, you know, her history and her career and all of that means that she checked all of the right boxes. And when I looked at her last night and I thought about her background, you know, having served as city attorney, uh, then as district attorney, going to the United States Senate, you know, running for president, she checked all of the boxes in ways that in politics, historically, they've expected you to check the box the way that the boxes that they want, those boxes checked. But we don't all look alike. We don't all approach our problems alike. We don't all expect uh, that we are to be accepted in the same way. And so we check different kinds of boxes, not always the expected boxes. And I know that we've got to move our party and you know this nation from thinking about us in ways that we all conform to. We all conform to it. We all check the same boxes and we all get chosen. Well, for many of us who don't get chosen, we understand why. Uh, we understand that we are being looked at in all kinds of ways. You know, I'm so sick of people talking about our hair, you know, and talking about our clothes and talking about our size, you know? That has nothing to do with whom we are. And so our boxes don't get checked the same. So when I go out on the road, and hopefully when we go out on the road, we're gonna talk about us ourselves in a different way. We're gonna be helpful uh, to the Democratic Party, but on our own terms. On our own terms. That's the name of this. We've been looking for it on our own terms. You named it. You named it. So, you know, you, you, uh, Congressman Waters, have yourself, you know, been uh, even recently a target of precisely this effort to take down your message by attacking you, the person, attacking you, the, the Black woman. Yes. I'm, I'm very interested to know how our would-be allies have shown up uh, when these attacks happen. Where have white women elected officials been when black women are, are attacked? Claire McCaskill last week called uh, some of the senators to task, uh, women senators, for not saying anything uh, about the attacks on Kamala Harris. And then on the other side uh, you know, of, of the aisle are our brothers. Where have they uh, shown up when black women have been attacked as black women? Do we have something that we can, you know, say we need to build on this? This is where you need to come to for and support us. Or do we have to write the pages in the playbook? Because they, they really don't exist right now. They really haven't shown up in the way they need to to cut off these attacks and undermine uh, the possibility of, of this ticket. Unfortunately, uh, those of you who have been involved in politics for many years know uh, that politicians have been taught to protect themselves and no one else. They have been taught uh, that if you want to move up, uh, if you want to get another perk, uh, if you want to be chosen, you can't put yourself at risk by getting out there and supporting someone who perhaps uh, have been thought to have stepped over the line. Because if you do that, uh, you're going to get aligned with that person and you're not going to be able to move up. You're not going to be chosen. You're not going to be, you know, given an opportunity. And so that's what they do. They hear you. They see you. They know uh, when you're being attacked, 
but it's all about not getting too close to you so that they won't be deemed uh, to be like you and you know cause themselves to be left out now having said that when i'm attacked i'm out there by myself but of course fortunately my feelings don't get hurt easily i come from a family of 13 children and we fought uh, we cursed uh, we loved each other to death uh, but we interacted in ways that you know you were joyful uh, when good things happened but when you were angry you were angry and you let somebody know it and so i don't my feelings did not get hurt it kind of rolls off but you know what i have learned to do and i'm still learning is not to just take it now you know as michelle obama says when they go low we go high no and i heard somebody saying and i think it was some it's joy on the view she said no when they go low we go lower <laughs> and so what i'm saying is i don't believe that you take constant insults and abuse and be quiet i just don't believe that i believe that you have a right to stand up for yourself and that has not been what is acceptable in the political world you're supposed to be nicer than that i don't believe that and i do think that we need to speak up we need to find ways to do that uh, so that you know many folks who are not you know as hard shelled as i am uh, who do get insulted you need to relieve yourself of that you don't need to go to bed at night feeling hurt and bruised and uh you know not knowing if you can make it the next day and not being able to face the next day because you're thinking that's what people think about you no we have to stop that and so to your your question and to your discussion uh yes the attacks are there and they are many and in addition to this president if you notice, don't attack me anymore. Uh, we <laughs> talked about my low IQ, and then I started to talk about how deplorable he was, uh, and uh, he, he left me alone, and he started talking about other women. But don't forget, he called the woman a dog, and nobody spoke up. And don't forget uh, that he's calling Kamala nasty, and we have not really addressed that. And we're going to have to address that. And so I think you're right and you're on point as we get into this discussion. Uh, but we will silence people if we, we uh, confront them head on about uh, the way that we are treated. And I think that we'll all be the better off for it. Thank you. Yes, yes, thank you so much for that. And you know, I think, I, I think we all need to hear that because having our say, saying our piece for all of us has, frequently generated precisely the kind of blowback that you talk about. And then on top of that, those who should come to our support actually end up, you know, following the logic that you talked about. I often wonder, where is everybody? Where did they go, right? You go leading a charge, you look around, and it's like, well, okay, <laughs> what happened here? So having the, having it explained, I think, is really helpful. You know, some people are following that logic. Um, you know, you don't get messed up in someone else's stuff, even if you agree to them, because, you know, survival is your, your number one, you know, imperative. But let's face it, most of us uh, do what we do because we're not just concerned about us. They, there is a bigger objective. There is a bigger thing that we're trying to do. So if saying what that thing is that we're trying to do gets us in trouble, well, it's good trouble. Um, as, as we've heard about. So speaking of good trouble, I want to just circle really quickly back to you, Kim, because 
you're in good trouble. <laughs> um, and, and, I, and I want our, our listeners to hear what a moment like this looks like when you're exercising your discretion in the office that you've been elected to perform in. You do what it is that you say you're there to do. And then because of who you are, because of this space that's open for you to be attacked, you get attacked. What happens when that happens? Who comes to bear? Who doesn't come to bear to defend? Well, first, I, I think you saw me like welling up. Uh, this was uh, nourishment for my soul because I, I have been and am under attack and keep looking around. And, and I will tell you, um, as Black women, it does, it gets very lonely because to the point that you just made, it is, it is about the community we represent, right? It's, it's selfishly, it is easy to get in the box. If you are just worried about your own political um, future, get in the box, say just what you need to say, don't offend if it's about you, but when it is about the communities that you serve, when it is truly supposed to be an act of service to them, you have to say the thing. You have to say the thing that won't be said. It's not enough to just be there. And so for me, it is a constant attack. It is a constant, and it's ugly. You know, this president has unleashed this demon in a lot of folks that were already there that, you know, I have been called everything but a child of God. And I've had institutions that are supposed to, whether it's our media, to, you know, to the point that the Congresswoman just made, where you start a conversation uh, with an assumption that has been made about you. Um, I, I've spent the last week where someone has said that I have, uh, a special prosecutor was called to investigate how I use my discretion. Discretion, which is the hallmark of prosecutors, to the frustration of many, that we have absolute discretion. And someone said I abused that abused it because I didn't prosecute as many, that I didn't go as punitive. Um, and now I have to explain to folks, well, why would you do that? In a way that white men have never had to explain it, that in this summer of reckoning around a broken justice system, there's a way that we got here that we haven't put under the microscope in a way that I've been put under the microscope for the last year. And what I've been waiting for is that folks to show up and say that this is this woman, this black woman is being treated differently. Yes, yes, yes. And you know, I, I and thank you for reminding us that, you know, getting elected and exercising the authority of your elected office are just two steps in a long struggle of being able to exercise power. It's not gonna be over when you know the biden harris team wins there's going to be ongoing efforts to undermine uh the exercise of authority and on, on this note what what i'm really wondering and i'm going to come to you with with this one donna there seems to be what i would consider to be an asymmetry between what happens in the democratic party and what happens in the republican party and i'll, I'll put the asymmetry this way those folks in the democratic party who really embrace empower and, the vo and are the voice of the base when the big party comes when the dance comes they're the wallflowers they're sitting around you know the back of the room and folks who have never wanted to be in this party who have never voted for this party who are not the wheels on this party actually you know seem to be getting uh more attention 
it's hard to imagine on the other side of the aisle the same thing happening. Um, that that the soldiers for the base, the ones who represent the most robust articulation of Trumpism, are going to be way on the wall, <laughs> and Democrats are going to be you know front and center. So it just makes me wonder whether the equations are different between the Democrats and uh, the Republicans, or another way of of worrying it. it. Would it be wrong to worry about our party being um, gentrified? That the folks that you know, the party cares about the most are these new folks, the, the Trump refugees, as opposed to the people who've been living there all along, the people who have, you know, taken the hits, the people who need to get mobilized in order for uh, this campaign to, to really be successful. So is this asymmetry real or does it look that way from the outside? Well, I, I think uh, the Biden campaign um, made a strategic decision uh, this week to feature uh, Joe Biden or to pitch him as someone who can heal the divides in our country, someone who can bring both sides of the divides together, someone who is more of a uniter, a healer. And by allowing some of, as you call them, the Trump refugees, some people call them rhino because they feel like they've left the Republican Party, and there are many of them, I think the, the, the campaign made a, a strategic decision to try to basically persuade everybody uh, because there are some persuadable Republicans, not a lot, but there are a lot of persuadable independents. And that is the calculation, I think. It is a political strategic calculation. They're going to treat black voters, minority voters, as persuadable voters. Why is that important? Because if you're only treated as a base voter, you get like 13 cents on a dollar. But if you're a persuadable voter, you get more like 92 cents on a dollar because they have to find you, they have to identify you, they have to send you three or four pieces of mail. And although we're not doing a lot of door knocking, they have to target you a lot differently. But I wanna go back to something Congresswoman Maxine Waters said earlier because I have listened to Maxine Waters probably since the 19, well, Maxine, I'm telling my age, not you, because you're much younger. But back in the Jackson campaign, uh, and we were so strategic in the Jackson campaign. We knew exactly how to get delegates. We knew how to impact the Democratic Party. We knew how to get on the Rules Committee, the Platform Committee, the Credentials Committee. And Barbara Lee, Maxine Waters, uh, there are so many of us who are still part of this process, still trying to shape it and refine it so that we never allowed to go back to what the Democratic Party used to be. Because you know, if you're not constantly fighting and putting out your own strategic ideas and your own strategic uh, issues and narrative, it will revert back to form. And so I think in this electoral context, knowing that the Democrats cannot get to 270 without us, let's be very real. Even Sister Fox in Illinois, if she didn't get people out to vote, we're not going to carry those 15 electoral votes. We're not going to carry the electoral votes in New York, okay? We got to make sure that we understand our strategic importance to this election. When you look at Hillary Clinton's defeat in 2016, it was by less than 80,000 votes. 11,000 that could have been made up in Detroit, but they decided they had the damn thing wanted. They didn't put no more money in the streets. When I say the streets, I'm saying strategically. You got to get people out. You just can't say election day is November 8th. People forget they're working. This is a strategic calculation when you're involved in these political parties. Where do you want to sit in the party? 
I've I've stayed on I've stayed on the rules committee since Jesse Jackson made sure that black people were on the rules committee. When Ron Walters got off the rules committee, my black ass got on the rules committee. And I ain't left the damn rules committee. I fight every year, and every year I have the same ballot. They try to take away the Jackson reforms. Those That's Jackson right. reforms, Maxine Waters, no. Those Jackson reform led us to this moment. Ain't nobody gave us a damn thing. We fought for this. <laughs> That's right. Didn't we, Congresswoman? Oh, we used to we, start more. We did. We used we to did. raise more help. And look, if I saw Maxine coming in the room, I got scared. I would go from being the <laughs> I would go from being the mild manner, don't cuss nobody out to ready. And here's one last thing that everybody should do. And I hope y'all tell this story. Had black people and black women in particular not raise their damn voices. The gays, the women, the Hispanics, ain't nobody else would have got there in the room because we opened our mouths and we fought like hell. And once we got in the room and we should look at each other and we knew what we had to fight for and we let everybody else in because that's what Shirley Chisholm taught us. That was Jesse Jackson's charge. That's, what's, that's who we are. So let's be clear. When Kamala called the role last night, she was calling out the names who had come before because we broke those damn doors down. Now we're going to break this ceiling and they'll never be able to put a damn ceiling above our heads after we break it this time. So, uh, Donna. Yes, ma'am. Donna, you know, we're talking about diversity and inclusion uh, as if it's a brand new thing. Will you tell people what the Rainbow Coalition was all about? <laughs> was that not diversity and inclusion. Did we not go on uh, the reservations with the Indians? Did we not go into farm country uh, with white farmers who were losing their farms and Jesse Jackson saved them? Did we not have Latinos as the national chair of our party in 1988? Like, well, anyhow, <laughs> that's what. And, and who had the first openly gay staffers? Jesse Jackson. Reverend Jackson did it all. Well, this is what I worry so much about, about the, the strategy that you talked about, Donna, because you all have made clear that it has been the voices and the political strategic brilliance of so many of our leaders, including the two of you, that put us in, in this position. And it is also the voices of our brilliant strategists who we're not hearing in the center of the party right now. So, so if we're acknowledging that we're standing on platforms, we're standing on ground that has been tilled and the seeds of these possibilities has been planted. And we're also saying that these are not the people that this right now the party is trying to center, then to me, I'm seeing a problem. I, I'm worried about this. I'm seeing the, uh, the party moving away from everything that got us to this moment, coveting, you know, refugees to bring them in. So it's sort of like our loyalty and our brilliance is a disadvantage in this moment. No, no, it's, it's, it's strategic. It's very strategic because look, we have to develop our own messaging. We have to develop our own tactics. We have to go to the party and say, if you want the electoral votes of this state, here's what we need. Remember, this is decentralized. I can't have a national strategy. I got to have a strategy in every state, right? What do you need to get the vote out? What do you need to protect the vote? What do you need to communicate with those voters who are infrequent? 
We need to come up with our own strategy. I'm not saying anything bad or good or uh, indifferent. I'm just saying in this moment, we've never been here before. So we can't use the old strategic playbook. We know it won't work because we have never had a black woman on a ticket. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So on that note, what's the messaging right now? So I'm going to ask everyone and, and start with you, uh, Representative Waters and, and Kristen. I really want to hear your sense about what the wider public needs to, to hear and then everyone else. So what needs to happen? <laughs> so what needs to be the demand? What are the conditions of possibility that need to be put in front of the Democratic Party need to be put in front of the media, that need to be put in front of our organizations. This is a unique moment, so uniquely, what do we need to do? Representative Water. Well, you know, I'm not so sure I have all the answers except to say this. I am worried uh, that we don't have the excitement uh, that I think is needed in order to advance, you know, the party to the, the winning of the presidency. I think that we need to find out and think about what is it going to take uh, to fire up our constituencies and those who may not be what we consider our constituencies, but who would come along with us if we can inspire them and motivate them. And so what I'm convinced about, it cannot happen with Democratic Party as usual. It really has got to have an injection of fire in order to really get people, you know, wanting to get out there and work. We are in a difficult situation. Look, we are here on a virtual meeting right now. Do you know uh, that in many of our communities, these meetings will never take place? Do you know that we have seniors who are not connected, you know, to the internet? Uh, do you know that we have seniors who don't know this technology? I have gone into senior citizen centers where the administrators or the managers don't even know whether the people in the, in the center are registered to vote. When these absentee ballots get to these centers, who's going to help them? I'm worried about that. Uh, so we need to think about more strategies. I think that perhaps we need to think about lighting up our communities in the old fashioned way. You know, the bullhorns and the cars driving through, uh, you know, today is election day, tomorrow is election day. Uh, don't forget to vote. If you need to know where your polling place is, if it's not an absentee ballot, uh, then call this number. I mean, I think that, you know, the old uh, parades uh, with the bullhorns, waking up the community is going to be necessary and people won't be necessarily walking, but they'll be riding in trucks and cars and getting people fired up. We need to think about a lot of these things. And it reminds us too that we need to get everybody fired up, not just for the election, but for afterwards. One of the big lessons I think from the last time was not to be demobilized after we mobilize, right? Because that's just the first step. After that, there's a question of the agenda. There's the question of when, who are gonna be the squeaky wheels that get the grease? And if we demobilize after we elect people, much of the agenda that we hope to be advanced may not be. So it's, it's a two-step process that sometimes we forget about. Kirsten, what do you think needs to happen to create this energy that Representative Waters is talking about? I think of two things. One, I think about Zora Neale Hurston saying, if we're silent about our pain, they'll kill us and say we enjoyed it. 
I think about the Kumbahi River Collective saying that if Black women are free, that would mean everyone would have to be free because our freedom would necessitate the destruction of all systems of oppression. And when we take those two things and we have someone like a Joe Biden, who even though we can talk about the Violence Against Women Act, we have Kerry Washington on stage who, who played Anita Hill. Where was that for Anita Hill? When we talk about um, change and, and creating energy around people, we have Black and Indigenous and Latino kids and young adults on the streets protesting the murders and the lynchings of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and going back to you know, Alton Sterling and Michael Brown and Trayvon Martin and all these people. And you have the, the nominee saying he doesn't believe in defunding police. He believes they need more money. And then you have somewhere like, like uh, Kim said in, in, in Chicago, and this is it's, it's a really good thing to look at because you have someone like a Lori Lightfoot who stands at the intersections of black, queer, womanhood. And there are police officers beating people in the streets right now. There was this teacher's union who, were, who said they were holding their contract because they wanted unhoused kids, mostly black kids, to have protections before they signed their contract. And she stood in opposition of that. So when we talk, and you have Jennifer Hudson seeing the change gonna come in 2020, 2020. And we're crying and we're emotional, but God damn, when is the change coming? James Baldwin said, you took my mother's time, my father's time, my uncles, my aunts, my nieces. How much time do you want for your progress, right? How many pounds of black flesh do you want? How many pounds of black women's flesh do you want for this progress? So I want in this moment, when we talk about energy and excitement, is it is, it's, it's the politics of it all, but it's also the politics of being black people just in general and surviving in this country. The politics of being black women and surviving in this country. We can talk about, they're calling Kamala a hoe and they're calling her a bed wench, and we're, we're upset about that. Are we talking about protections for sex workers, right? We can talk, we're upset because they're police and what are we gonna do about police officers? Are we talking about the fact that it is a genuine, legitimate concern when she expressed pride in being the top cop? Right when there was a law that was that, that that was meant to intimidate black women around truancy, do we talk about that? Do we go to those people and we say, "Hey, we get it. Your 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 anger, your resentment, all of that stuff is legitimate." But what do we do now? Right? There's black history and there's black futures. How do we get ourselves in a position where we can fight to live another day? And I don't think that entails holding people accountable after they get in office because the power is the point. So once they're there, what do we have to stand on? And I, I just, I want us to look at, I just wanna bring the movement into this place. I wanna bring Ferguson in this place. I wanna bring Baltimore, where we had people, at, black people in leadership who call, you know, protesters thugs, where we had, you know, at one point, I don't wanna delegitimize the fact that it's not that there was more excitement around Obama than there is this time. It's the fact that we had a black attorney general, we had a black president, and we saw what was not done for black people. And we cannot underestimate how many people were radicalized out of that. Well, let me, let me just, because everything that you say, I mean, it is so correct, it is so right, until it's even painful to think about all that needs to be done. And when I talk about uh, taking the show on the road, I'm not talking about 
going and talking with anybody to get any permission to do this. And when I go out to talk, and when we go out to talk, we have to talk like you're talking right now. And we don't have, we should not ask anybody. I don't even want to negotiate with them to be a part of what? Because look, you just have to use your platform and respond uh, to communities and invitations and talk what we need to talk. And that's how I think we may be able to bring about change more than saying, uh, somebody saying to us, I promise you when I get elected, I'm gonna do exactly what you're asking me. That's what you don't want to hear. What you wanna do is you wanna go and create that kind of excitement and inspire people so that people are saying, yeah, that's what we want. I'm really not talking about negotiating with anybody, you know, to be a part of anything. I'm talking about uh, when you have an opportunity to go to Philadelphia to a church or to, you know, any other organization, a sorority, a fraternity, what have you, speak your truth. That's what I'm really talking about. I'm talking about, you know, taking your power and speaking about those issues in the way that they need to be spoken about and uh, helping people uh, to get to the point where they say, well, you know, I feel comfortable in asking, you know, Biden or Kamala or, or Perez or my congressperson uh, because I've never heard them talk about this issue before. So that's what I'm talking about. And so when I say take this show and, you know, and put it on the road, that, that's really what I'm alluding to. And, and, and that's exactly what uh, let's bring Barbara in because uh, Barbara, this was partly, you know, the idea, right? We needed, we need hear from Black women, and obviously there's a diversity um, among even progressive Black women about what needs to happen now, and we know what we're united on that this conversation needs to happen. So, so what what are our marching orders from your vantage point, Barbara? Well, there are several. First of all, I'm going to say to my Congresswoman. Maxine Waters, uh, just thank you for being here because we know, you know, DNC is going on. You and Donna, you guys have been pulled. They're every which way. So thank you so much. And I think your sermon on the Mount, I'm going to call it the Black Woman Sermon on the Mount that you gave. <laughs> black women are going to get energy from that and some healing. That yeah. was a powerful message. And thank on you. November 3rd, listen, folks, between now, early voting starts in many states in September. Uh, we got to get ready right now. We don't have any time to sit around and play games. Uh, you know, I am so happy, uh, Congresswoman Waters, that you said what you said because what we have been saying, our whole message is our march to the ballot box. Uh, we also, you know, need to make sure that our young people you know, people should know, you know, my heart has always been in young people. You know, so I believe in, you know, our young people very strongly and, you know, training and working with our young so that they are doing what they can do to get out here and be poll workers, to get out here and help with the outreach, to be out here and make sure that the campuses are organized even though they're dispersed. Uh, there's a lot to be done. There's a lot we can do. We can be creative in this time. Uh, but I want to just encourage everyone, if you're listening and if you're saying, hey, I want to be part of this fight, darn it, I'm standing up because people are telling me 
vaccine that if, uh, and Donna and Eric and Kirsten and, and uh, Kim, that if they got to put on, uh, you know, puffy jackets and roll to the polls, they're going to be there. <laughs> you know, they said that they're that they going to crawl, they're going to throw knee pads, they're going to do whatever they got to do because they're going to vote. They're going to have on everything, sheets, whatever, that they're going to vote. Uh, you know, and I just, I mean, we got to understand there's energy out there. How do you mobilize it? How do you help it? How do you take down all this voter suppression? How do you get, you know, how do you push aside all this nonsense, this discouragement nonsense? How do you really do it? Because the people want to vote. They threw. They had it. That's they right. want to be heard. They want to be through. And they want to be heard, and we got to clear the field so that they can make it to the goalposts. Uh, we got to be able to do that, and we got that information. So I want us right now go to votingrightsalliance.org, votingrightsalliance.org. Join us. You know we're actively organizing. I'm not sleeping. I was up until three last this morning. You know working, working, working on how we're going to mobilize people working on how we're going to do this because we're not going to let this moment pass. One thing you'll never get back is time. Time, is, it moves. It has no respect for human beings. It just moves. And we have to move with it. So this is our moment, folks. It's imperative for Black women. That's why we created this space today because Black women got to be here. Ooh. All right, Reverend Barber. And there she is. I want to thank you all. Kim, uh, want to give us a benediction? I mean, I, I, I can't follow that up. Uh, other than, you know, it, it resonates that we got to lead with what got us here as Black women, which is not hiding our pain and not hiding the barbs that we've had to go through, um, no matter where they came from. And as it has been pointed out, it comes from every space. And that is what makes us so uniquely qualified to lead is because we've had to be able to thrive in all circumstances um, within our homes and outside. And, you know, as, as Congresswoman said, you know, what I missed from last night was the gather everybody into the room moment um, to herald what was happening with this black woman being there, that this isn't like a Disney princess that like, let's marvel that we have one in the fold for this woman to have gotten there. She went through many barbs and many fences and many wires and we'll support her and hold her to account. But this isn't a moment that was like crafted um, by somebody's playbook. This was blood, sweat and tears for the women who got us here before. And so I'm just inspired by the diversity of the voices here. Let's hold to account as we get there. Let's protect once we are there. We know it has been documented and said that the most unprotected person in this world is the black woman. And we can't just know it and say it and like put it on our Facebook posts. We have to like live it. And the living it means putting all of our energy and effort into protecting one another and building that force around us, but it is owning that we need that protection. It is owning that there will be those who come and seek to harm and hurt us as they have in all of our history and that we have to be armed up for that. And what I will say about Senator Harris, when I first got elected, she was the first person who reached out to me and you know said to me there were things that she wished she could have done that now it is my obligation to do. So she did reach her hand back so that she wasn't the first black DA in San Francisco. She helped 
the first black one in Chicago, who then allowed me to help the first black one um, in Boston. And that's what's required and that's what we do. And so we gotta show up and show out in the ways that we always have on November 3rd, taking nothing for granted. Cause I assume that this race actually got more unstable when the black woman came because it then draws out all of those who would stand up in ways that they wouldn't have had to before. So I'm just, I'm, I'm excited, I'm hyped. I've been filled by this. And I would say up and down the ticket, up and down the ticket. Let us hope and pray that as we have a black woman at the top, it continues to draw the rest of us through, whether it's on the school boards that have left off Fannie Lou Hamer out of our books um, or the library board or others that we need to show up and show out across the board and, and support uh, Senator Harris's leadership as she goes through this gauntlet, because it's coming. And Kim, are you on the ticket coming up? I am. I'm, I'm now, for my selfish part, yes, I am on the ticket on November 3rd, and it is a referendum of what it looks like. You know, to Kirsten's point, we can get into these jobs and it could, we could do the easy thing, but we demand better than that for ourselves. And so the attacks are hard, the attacks are real, the attacks on me are vicious. And I will say there have been moments just today um, that I asked myself, why do we do this? And, and watching Congresswoman Waters not even know that she was giving a word directly to my spirit, was like, okay, let me roll that off. Um, but it requires us to be just as vigilant because Kirsten, it is easy to sit at intersections and do the thing that doesn't shake the table. I say, you know, they, Shirley Chisholm, you, you bring the foldings here. I'm like, set the menu. Mm. We've been eating things for so long, grateful to be at the table to have gotten a plate. I want to be as picky as my brunch mates who say, don't put that, don't add that, don't. They come away fully satisfied and not bloated and, and discomforted because they did not apologize for asking for what they wanted and what they needed and what satisfied them. And that's what we have to do. And when we do it, we have to protect each other. Yes. And please let us all know what we can do from across the country to answer that call, Kim. We're going to bring the road show to Chicago. We, we're going to do a virtual, like, bring the road show to Chicago and get us in time. And we'll bring the tables and the menu. So I'm mindful of the time. We thought that we'd be in and out, but then we also know when we get going, we can get going. So I want to thank all of you for joining us today. This was a historic conversation following a historic nomination last night. We're at a pivotal point in history. And I am just blessed to have been on this call with women who can carry us to a better future. Or in the words of Maxine Waters, a group that can build a better America on our own terms. So let me thank, first of all, the guests, Representative Maxine Waters, State Attorney Kim Fox, uh, TJC, Barbara Arnwine, Donna Brazil, and Kirsten West Savali. If there's one lesson to emerge from our conversation today, it's that this historic presidential campaign it's just not enough for us to celebrate the symbolic dimensions of this nomination. We've got to fully address the status of Black women in the country, in the party, and throughout electoral politics. So if we don't claim this moment, if we don't counter-galvanize against all of this mainstream stuff that's going on that would make her candidacy nothing more than symbolic, then this might be a moment that we could lose, and we are determined not to lose it. So this is the time for us to have our say. 
Intersectionality Matters is produced by Julia Sharp Levine. This episode was edited by Julia Sharp Levine and Sarah Ventry. Additional support was provided by the team at the African American Policy Forum. You can support us by leaving a review on iTunes, following us on social media, and signing up for our Patreon page. Intersectionality Matters is supported by you, our listeners. If you value conversations like these, consider donating at aapf.org. I'm your host, Kimberly Crenshaw, and this is Intersectionality Matters. Louis Scarcella was the greatest homicide detective of his generation. I am the protector of these people. I am the guardian that they need. Derek Hamilton was the best jailhouse lawyer of his. And the law was my girlfriend. It was all I had. What happens when a group of convicted felons take on the cop who put them away? We got to attack Scarcella. Come and get me. Listen to new episodes of The Burden on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.